Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode of the show is supported by The Strength Factory. Hopefully you've heard last week's episode with Ben where he helped outline a blueprint for your off-season fitness so that you can be ready to smash the trails when spring and summer rolls around. If you didn't, then make sure you go and give it a listen. I've been using Ben's complete MTB program for a while now and it's made a huge difference to how good I feel on the bike. If you've never done any mountain bike specific training before then I can highly recommend giving it a try. I think you'll be surprised by the results. If you want to give it a go then as a downtime listener you can get $20 off the 8 week foundation part of the program until the 23rd of November by using the code DOWNTIME at the checkout over at thestrengthfactory.uk. That's thestrengthfactory, all one word, then .uk, not .co.uk. As we're in a period of uncertainty with lockdowns in a number of countries and gym access not necessarily being available all the time, it's worth saying that the foundation program is yours for life. So if you need to pause during any lockdowns and there's no worries and it's always there for you. Also, if you want to train while gyms are closed, then Ben has a bodyweight only program on his website and that is yours for life for just £16. You can find that at thestrengthfactory.uk forward slash bodyweight-mtb or via the links in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. Don't forget to make sure you subscribe to the show. It's free and it means you'll get every episode as soon as it's there. It's really easy to do. There's buttons for all the major platforms over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. On that page, you can also join my newsletter and you'll get a weekly dose of interesting bike-related stuff, competitions and products that I've been enjoying. If you want to support the show, you can head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop and grab yourself a treat. We've got t-shirts, sweatshirts and hoodies, all totally organic, printed to order and shipped with no single-use plastic. Massive thanks to everyone who's ordered them so far. Keep your photos coming in. I'm really enjoying seeing you wearing them. All right, this episode is also supported by Privateer Bikes, and I'm joined by their MTB brand manager, Sam Megan, and Alistair Beckett from Redburn Design. These guys were a big part of the team behind bringing you the Privateer 161 and 141 that have been taking the bike world by storm over the last few months, and also taking Matt Stuttard to a top 10 finish in the Enduro World Series. We sit down to chat about where the idea for Privateer Bikes came from, and we dig into the process of bringing the 161 to market. We chat about their progressive approach to bike geometry, the challenges of making something so good at this price point and what it takes to launch a new bike brand. We also chat about their approach to specking a full bike, the 141 and where they're going from there. It's awesome to have a small new bike brand doing things a little differently and it was a pleasure to find out more about it. So without further ado, here's Sam and Ali. Sam Megan and Ali Beckett, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. Sam, we'll start with you. How's things? Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. So, yeah, get get us started. Tell us a little bit about uh, what it is you do. Cool. Well, I guess like with most people at the rider firm, you kind of have your finger in many pies, uh, which is kind of quite nice with a smaller growing company. You can kind of get involved with a lot of different things. Um, but I guess like my official role would be MTB brand manager. So working across both Hunt Mountain and Privateer. Yeah, a bit of marketing, a bit of product development, you know, kind of a bit of everything really from press releases and events, a uh, bit of social media to like helping to guide like the internal brand, I guess, if you want, like who we are, what we're trying to do. And then same on the product, like looking at product specs and working with people like Ali to get frame sorted. So yeah, it's quite varied role, but it's, uh, it's good fun. Yeah, it sounds good. For people that don't know, just give us a real brief explanation of what the rider firm is. Yeah, so like uh, <clears throat> the rider firm side probably must be like five or six years ago now and just started by Tom and Pete, two brothers and 
really was just searching for product that didn't really exist. They started trying to do tubeless road wheels and then <clears throat> just took off from there, really going from road, gravel, mountain bikes, and then just always trying to look at from the product, uh, looking at the product from a rider point of view and trying to develop product to suit that. And yeah, really trying to have that direction that steered everything. And then from there, yeah, we've grown into like can e-bikes and now privateer uh, like mountain bikes uh, and descent one three three, which does a lot of like wet weather like gloves and stuff like that. So yeah, it's cool. It's uh, just like just I guess like a, a, just yeah, it's a good middle ground to grow all the brands and yeah. Just trying to find product that suits riders and yeah, go from there. Nice. All right, cool. And Ali, what about you? How's it, how's it going over there? Yeah, good, Chris. Not too bad at all. Um, yeah, I guess my position in this whole thing is um, the, 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 I founded a company called Redburn Design uh, nearly three years ago now. Um, and yeah, we've started working with with Sam and the rest of the team at the rider firm, uh, mostly on the, on the privateer brand, um, helping them with the design and development of all of the bikes um that fall under that privateer brand so far yeah and what's what's your background before that because you've been in the bike industry for quite a long time yeah yeah um i guess so i I studied originally studied mechanical engineering in college when i left that i kind of did a bit of a spate in in chain reaction working in sales and warranty and that kind of stuff Uh, i then worked for a couple of years um with a buddy of mine ben reed um as a as a mechanic um traveling around the world cup um, scene so i did that for i think four or five years um and then after that got the position working as a design engineer um, for Nukeproof, which was obviously part of, of Chain Reaction Cycles. It was one of their their house brands and did uh, did seven or eight years growing Nukeproof uh, as a brand uh, up until, yeah, the end of 2017 uh, before I, I left to then start Redburn Design. Good stuff. Cool. Mm. Well, yeah, Sam, so let's start, start with you then. And I guess the story starts coming from the rider firm. Like how did the idea for privateer bikes come about in the first place? Um, I guess like, like most of the projects we have, it kind of just stems from conversations from people having and trying to figure out is there a gap or like kind of people just start talking. There's a lot of conversations in the office that like people are like, oh, what? like why don't we do that? Or like, why don't we do that? Or this. And actually really stemmed from Tom, one of the founders who really got involved into sort of like progressive geometry. He was kind of following that trend quite a lot in mountain biking and uh, just yeah, kept kept following it and just kind of seeing that it didn't really ever trickle down to, I guess, a more approachable level or more accessible level to riders. And just trying to figure that out. I was like, oh, you know, if I'm going to Morsing once a year, like I want this bike that can handle all the big downhill stuff, but also be able to pedal back up to do more runs. Like if the lifts are sharp or you want to just pedal a normal trowel. And really it started from there. It's like this, you get a little bit of momentum and that it gradually builds up. It starts the conversation in the office. Like, oh, have you ever ever seen any bikes that are doing this or... what do you think about that how do you think about this and then yeah from there it starts this what is a small little idea starts growing and then from there like we obviously speak to ali and start kind of bouncing ideas off him to to figure out whether we can this is doable to start with like a lot of ideas you kind of have but can't ever really go anywhere they're kind of maybe out of reach at this point or you know not quite ready for that yet but it kind of very quickly took a lot of momentum and yeah it went from there really so yeah how much of kind of the 161 was decided before you got in touch with Ali like did you guys have a pretty strong feel for what you wanted or was it more of a collaborative effort um we definitely had like an idea of what we wanted I think like there was always like some key 
areas we wanted to get it was like alloy frame uh like progressive geometry uh like rider focused sort of features so just trying to make a frame that didn't have any sort of just i don't know like just making sure it was the right product for like enduro racers or people that are going to do a full season of racing and yeah just trying to think of like what would be the right bits to include on that bike and like where we can yeah and it's and then when i guess when we went to ali we kind of had that idea and it was a fairly loose framework of like yeah we want this bike and it, it's yeah, and Ali kind of helped us structure it a bit more. So we had an idea of what we wanted to achieve with geometry. But it is interesting, like the conversations we had in the early days and looking back to where we were, to where we ended up, it was quite interesting to see like the evolve, how it evolved even in that short space of time. Like the geometry we first started off, we thought was very progressive. And then as the conversations went on, we pushed it further and further. And then it's like just went from there really. And I think, yeah, we gave Ali a bit of a framework of what we wanted and we discussed some different frame platforms and the pros and cons of those and then yeah with Ali's help kind of narrowed it down to the layout we have and then from there it was kind of refining the detail point so I guess we had a pretty and we had the idea but we didn't have like the structure in place and like say Ali with his experience kind of helped us piece it together so we kind of gave him like an open format and then he kind of yeah came back with us like right this is what we can do so we basically threw a load of ideas at him and yeah he helped us turn it into an actual product okay yeah Ali tell us a little bit about that then how was it like were you excited i guess when uh, when privateer came knocking at your door yeah definitely i mean it was pretty early on um it was not long after i guess i'd started the business it was only a handful of months um after i'd started and and so far up until that point i'd, I'd been doing much smaller projects you know in, in components and things like that so this was probably the first I guess frame project that had come across the door of the business, um, and and like Sam says, you know they had they had some some thoughts and ideas on what it was they wanted to to create, but you know it wasn't like a, a really in depth design brief. Um, so th- there was a really interesting period of time where I'm, I'm looking at it, trying to, I guess, not just understand the product that they wanted, but I I felt like I needed to try and understand their business because that was going to obviously steer the the finished or the end product you know there's no point trying to help them develop a bike or a chassis that was going to be you know suited to a much larger business or a, you know or a, a solely online or whatever you know it, so i think it was a good process to go through trying to you know i guess get under the skin of what the privateer and what the rider firm was i'm not even sure if they had the brand name actually at that stage you know it was that early on but um, yeah, it was it was a good process, and there was a lot of back and forward. You know, I guess I was trying to challenge their thought process and, and ask questions as to you know, okay, well, you think you've you're asking for this um, kind of product? Why is that? And who's your customer? And there was a lot of, I guess, back and forward in that respect, uh, and then also trying to map out right, okay, well, what, what's important to you in terms of design or features or you know, even as far as how you want to produce this thing? Um, so there were, there was a, I guess, a, a fair amount of time spent at the start just in discussion back and forward you know i those guys are based down in sussex and i'm I'm obviously in northern ireland so i was i was back and forward on the plane a couple of times to really sit down with the team and and like sam says it was a a company that was growing really quickly and the team was chopping and changing and growing every every you know every couple of weeks if i'd go back there'd be twice as many people in the room it was quite you know so it was quite challenging it was different to what i was used to having worked in larger companies before where you know they were maybe a little more structured but actually those structures you know, the lack of having that structure in the rider firm allowed them to be super flexible and super progressive, which was quite exciting. You know, it was new and it was new to me as well. So I think that that all helped get to a better product in the end. Yeah, it must be quite 
nice, I guess, to be in a position to to work with a company that are that keen to push certainly the geometry envelope because I think like yeah, yeah that's one thing that the the one six one has really done is has taken that envelope quite a long way. It was it's a pretty yeah. bold move. Yeah, and I think that was that was probably one of the there weren't a whole lot of um kind of fixed parameters in the in the in the initial design brief. It was, you know, that was one of the main ones. Like we want, you know, we see all these bikes and this was this was at the time this was coming very much from Tom and the rest of the the wider team, but they were I guess looking at the progressive geometry that was out there with a couple of brands, but those were all quite um premium and, and expensive products you know so there wasn't there wasn't a product that was an, in that kind of middle ground or va- you know that value price point that was offering the performance that people you know figured they could get from these longer geometry or more progressive geometry bikes so that was one of the brief points that was kind of fi- relatively fixed in it was still open for debate you know what was progressive and what was progressive going to be in the 18 months it was going to take potentially to develop the bike because obviously you need to design ahead of time to make sure the mm-hmm. products where it needs to be when it launches so there was yeah there was a lot of time um i guess figuring figuring that out but beyond that in terms of a brief there it was fairly much a blank canvas in a lot of respects which was exciting for me but also quite daunting because everyone looks at you to sort of say right okay well what else are you going to do with this to make it you know make it special or make it um i guess applicable to that customer yeah and what what were the biggest debates then what kind of stuff did you guys spend the most time trying to decide on um First of well, basically the length, you know, the length of the bike, the reach figures and that kind of stuff and the way it was sized, you know, what we started off, I guess I was trying to be cautious as well, you know, let them be adventurous in what they're asking for. But I suppose I, I felt kind of always obliged to try and balance that with, um, okay, well, let's not go too crazy and make something that's completely out there. But uh, that was probably, you know, those they, those guys were pushing for for longer and longer and longer and slacker. And I think, like Sam touched on, you know, we kind of went back through all of the original design documents um, this morning before the call. And it's funny to see, you know, how it did evolve and changed from what we thought was long to then going longer. And then, you know, the whole seat, this whole seat tube angle debate came in. And I think there was definitely a, a quite a strong drive for. I think, was it this term, winch and plummet? I'd never heard of this, but this is what the guy kept talking about. We want a bike that you can, you know, winch and plummet up the... And I thought, yeah, okay, I better go and figure out what they mean by this. But obviously a bike that they can, you know, climb up for, you know, to the steepest trails and then just bomb it back down. And that kind of developed itself or manifested itself into that that 80 degree um, seat tube angle. So those once we had those two things locked in, then the rest of it was kind of, okay, well, we've got a bit of flexibility in how we do this and let's, let's go down the the design route and, and you know open a few doors to see what way this starts to pan out yeah were those numbers locked in through discussion or were there prototypes being made and things being ridden and tested before you decided on some of that stuff how, how does that all work yeah they were all they were all locked in in discussions in 3d models so we went through quite a few 3d models um over the course of the process rather than you know we weren't as a as a new company or new brand you know they didn't have the first of all they didn't have the network you know the connections with the frame factories to just 
you know, knock up a prototype. That doing that in Asia is a is a fairly complicated process, and you need to be at a point where you're, you know, you're either you're working with the same factory or you know, or you source it locally, and that's that's challenging enough. It was something we discussed, but you know, we didn't go down that route at the time. Um, so a lot of it was done figuratively, and I think it, there were a couple of prototype frames ordered from different vendors in Asia that were test ridden, and they had some of the numbers, um, but they weren't the fact, you know, they weren't. The frames that we ended up going down the road with, if, if that makes sense. I think at the mm-hmm. at the start of the whole thing, there was obviously a desire to design the bike ourselves, but there was also a well, let's not, you know, let's not completely rule out the fact that we might be able to find a frame that's that's completely open model that we can apply our geometry and and then oh hey that fast tracks the project. You know that that was discussed and and but I think we soon realised that actually that wasn't going to give us everything that we wanted, but that allowed some amount of testing to go on so it was definitely a valid process to go through and a beneficial process to go through but it turned out it wasn't quite right for what the privateer brand needed to be and what and the, and the direction that the team wanted to take it yeah okay so yeah you've got you've got a lot of the i guess the layout or at least the the, the numbers on paper yeah where do you go from there to to getting to the point where you you've got a design that's sort of ready to send out to manufacturers and at what point are you bringing those manufacturers on board to start looking at that because i'm guessing there's an element certainly when you're looking at trying to make something that's very cost competitive you want to work with the manufacturers to make sure it's easy to make because that's going to reduce the cost yeah 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 exactly and and i suppose we went about it in a different way to how um I guess traditionally you would start to develop a bike where you, you know your engineering team would you know do all of the modeling they would decide they would decide on the aesthetics and the tube profiles and all of that stuff and then they would send a finished design off to the chosen factory that they wanted to work with and and, that, and then the ball would would start rolling from that point we went at it from a different way whereas we knew that we were going to have to essentially try and utilize the factory's expertise and utilize some of the you know tubes that they might already have access to because you know opening tooling for all of that stuff would have been a non-starter for a new brand it's just so it's so expensive to go down that route so we were trying to think alternatively about well okay if we if we can source some open model tubing well then we can we can spend our time and, and our investment on the the designed parts that you know the junctions and and we can pull a frame together that way um, but that meant going you know knocking on the door of of a couple of different factories to try and find the right one if that made sense and we were we would do a lot of design we'd have a almost a, a finished 3d model together with a certain factory and then we would get to the point where this it isn't feasible for whatever reason either volumes weren't right or the factory decided hey do you know what we haven't got the capacity anymore and and then we kind of went back to the drawing board so we we went through this i think three times um and, and had to redesign the bike three times for three different vendors, if that makes sense. And oh, well, yeah. purely because we, we knew what was important to the customer, you know, the end user, and we didn't want to end up spending a lot of investment and tooling time um, on the wrong part of the frame, if that made sense, or with the wrong vendor that wasn't actually going to, to work with the brand. And I think it ended up with a much you know we ended up with a much better product at the end of it but it was certainly a, it, for me it was a long process to go through because i was you know having to redesign the bike more than you know it wasn't just a here's the design let's let's move forward it was kind of okay we've got to really go back and and start from scratch with the knowledge that we now have uh, and 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 try and improve it if that makes yeah. sense would it be fair to say then that if cost was less of an issue you probably wouldn't have had to go around that loop so many times you could have just gone to a factory and 
decided um, to make it there or yeah well i guess if you had if 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 money was no object and you had you know if you if you had 100k investment sitting in the bank that you wanted to spend on tooling you could go with whatever factory you want and have whatever design you want but actually you you might not have you know all that that cost has to go somewhere so it, essentially it has to go back into the price of the frame of the bike and the customer then has to pay it and that was something that the rider firm you know kind of educated me on that was the way that they're you know they looked at the customer for this bike and they said well if we have to spend you know 20 grand on a on a a, some tooling for this bike that 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 has to be added to the price of the end product so the customer is going to end up paying for that so the decision making was was coming down to well if if we can we can put you know money into tooling up for this product if we think it's going to add that same level of value back to the customer and and that's you know we did that with a lot of parts of the frame but in the end, you know, we didn't need to open a new top tube tool that would have added, you know, however many pounds or dollars to the frame because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't going to add that value back to the person that was buying it, you know, and and you could see why you could go from a, you know, a fifteen hundred pound frame to a two thousand pound frame very easily, for, and and the, and they might not look very different or they might not really perform any better or worse, uh, and that was kind of the a big part of the design ethos that we carry through and still carry through with, with all the additional models that we've, we've been working on. Yeah. So you've brought together, I guess, a combination of stuff that's available yeah. off the shelf to kind of keep the cost down and then focused on what's important. And that's where you've created the bespoke bits that you really need to deliver those areas. Is that, exactly. is that right? Exactly that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There, you know, there are, there are a couple of parts that are essentially, yeah, they call it open model, whatever in, in Asia, but um, the rest of the part was all designed around ourselves. And, you know, we, every time we redesigned the frame, we had to then, you know, att- essentially find a different open model part, or if it can't be found, we're okay, we have to design it and we have to produce that ourselves. So, but that was, that's very much the theory that that's been deployed. Yeah. Yeah. So talk us through some of the more challenging aspects of the the detail behind that design then. Um it's not so it's I mean I guess because we knew that we were going to go fairly progressive on the geometry, um we decided I mean certainly from a suspension point of view we wanted something that was going to feel familiar. You know, we could have gone really out there with a you know quite a progressive suspension design as well but actually there was going to be a lot of change on this bike as to what you know compared to its competition so we thought let's let's try and simplify some areas that we don't need to be quite as brave on at the minute so um you know that's why i guess it's got a four bar horse link layout um in terms of complexity there wasn't you know it is a reasonably simple design if that makes sense um there's nothing overly um extravagant about it because again we wanted function to be the key rather than maybe aesthetics or or features you know a lot of bikes now have got features for storage and all that kind of other stuff and for us it was more about the function so we've got quite large oversized bearings on the on the two main pivots on the rocker pivot and the chainstay pivot um we've got two two bearings on the drive side um of the main uh swing arm uh, again to try and counteract pedaling forces as well and there's quite a lot of anti-squat on this bike so that you know the pedal forces you do notice them a bit more but it helps it really helps the bike when you're when it's climbing um but beyond that there weren't a lot of other complicated parts um cable routing when we, we went through a lot of debate about that because we again we wanted to try and keep it as simple as we could but trying to keep cable routing simple is actually quite complex to do you know to do it yeah. well so um that was probably the most difficult part to get to get right um even though it doesn't look it if that makes sense yeah and so matt stuttard was i guess one of the first sort of athletes to 
be involved with this. At what at what point did Matt get involved? Was that while there was still kind of development ongoing? Yeah, definitely. Um, quite early on in the development side of things, you know, they were they were asking him about what his preference was, and maybe Sam can talk a little bit more about this um, with his, as it's more in his wheelhouse. But a lot of the features and refinements that came, I think, were passed down um, from from feedback that Matt had had. Yeah, yeah. Go, Sam, yes, yeah, so give us a bit of uh, a bit of a view of of why uh, why you brought Matt on board and and how that worked. I'm really like with a lot of opportunities. It was kind of like right time, uh, Matt put it out that he was looking for sponsorship. His current deal came to a close and he was looking for a new opportunity. And we're like, oh, this is this is perfect. We've got a guy that is you know, EWS level racer looking for an opportunity. And for us, it just, yeah, it worked out really well. And we kind of, for the first season, we were very open to say, look, you can continue racing in your current bike. We want to make sure this bike is perfect for you. And from there, like we just, that whole first season, we just kind of were in the background asking him lots of questions. And we kind of, presented i guess where we were at with the progress of the bike and it was fairly like i say it was fairly early on um and he liked the idea of it and he liked a lot of what we were trying to achieve with it and he seemed you know very keen on the geometry and then he kind of gives a few uh sort of his own thoughts and feelings on geometry and yeah we kind of helped to change that a bit and then obviously we go back to go work with ali to go oh yeah matt's thinking this we're thinking that and can we incorporate this or that uh, and yeah it's even not it's like the smaller details as well. Like it's not just the bigger picture stuff, like geometry was key, but it was also stuff that, you know, Matt is actually a racer, you know, and that was something that we wanted to focus on. It was a bike that we were building for effectively Matt, but you know, as other people, you know, this is a bike that that was aimed at. We were like, Oh, this is built for a privateer racer. And Matt is that racer. Like what is the things you wanted? And you mentioned, like we touched on cable routing. That was something that, you know, from the very early days, it, we did have a lot of debate about how we route it, and then we end up wanting to route it externally because we're like that's simplest. Which again, I'm kind of kind of simplifying that for Ali because I know that was a much bigger headache than just going, yeah, just put it externally, <laughs> just bolt it to the frame, it's fine. But um, yeah, but then we routed up that, and we had it on the head tube guides. Um, we had the first prototype, and Matt rode it. It's like, oh, this is really cool. I like the fact there's no rattle or rub, but it it goes in the line of the the race uh, plate, which we hadn't considered. And it was something we were like, ah, okay. oh, how like we hadn't considered a race plate. And like, this is a race plate. We need to and it was that kind of thing where perhaps we missed just small details in the early days. And Matt really was helpful in kind of providing that. And it was literally a case of lowering those head tube guides a bit to clear a race plate. Otherwise it would have meant that the cables were trying to you know, be would be in the way of that race plate. And it's yeah, it was stuff like that which really helped us kind of refine it into what it is today, really. So yeah, he was key for that. And yeah, he provided a huge amount of testing on the early prototypes and then he raced the final prototype on uh Trophy Nations and that was really cool for us. It's like, oh like we've got this bike and it's set Trophy Nations and Matt's racing it. So it's uh that was a pretty proud moment when we took that bike and he got raced there. So yeah, he was yeah, instrumental in helping us develop that. I think, you know, it wouldn't be the bike it was without Matt. I think, you know, we owe a huge amount for him for that because it's, yeah, the whole brief of the bike was built around a racer like Matt. You know, it's, how does it survive a season? How does a privateer look at a bike? Like, what is important to them? And how can we put that in a bike? And it's, I don't think it would have been very authentic if we'd just done it ourselves because, like, as much as we think we're quite quick in the office, Matt, you know, true racers, like EWS level racers are just a whole another like another breed they're in yeah just crazy quick so it's it's cool to have had that input in there so yeah i think it was yeah massively vital to that yeah definitely what uh who was the first person to ride the first prototype version of the bike then um so we we got a couple initially of 
like from that first prototype well it depends on which prototype we had a couple that were as ali mentioned were like from different vendors and stuff but in terms of like the very first prototype that would be stemming into what the bike is today like the closest to that we got a few of them and matt was pretty much one of the first people to get on that and then mm-hmm. so tom in the office also was very like he's like oh this is a bike that you know, it came out of his head effectively like he was that person that sowed the seed for it so he rode it quite a lot and then we took a local rider called liam so he took it to morzine and he's also a very quick racer um, and took it out to morzine did a bunch of testing for us on a very early prototype like it was completely different geometry had a slightly different frame layout uh, completely different, different paint sorry uh different few different frame layout bits but yeah the idea of the the geometry was kind of right and a few bits of that. So he then took it and rode it in Morsi and Matt was raced, like riding it in his practice sessions between racing. And yeah, they were like, oh, cool. We think we've kind of got it right. And then we're at Eurobike fairly soon after. So we had to take that prototype that was still not even painted and kind of like covered in like mud stain effectively because it, it just wheeling it around. But yeah, it's amazing uh, the attention that a raw frame gets with a big prototype sticker shoved on it so it is pretty yeah it's pretty cool how people are like oh what's that <laughs> it must be quite nervous though when that the first sort of few bits arrive because that like certainly with the, the seat tube angle i think is maybe the most out there element of that bike and until you've actually got your leg over one and had a ride and checked out feels it must be quite a nervous time oh yeah for sure like it was you know i remember getting the frames out and a few of us were just like getting out like oh and it's that initial moment and you're just like oh this is insane and you're like you kind of, it's all just so new and fresh and it's it's like almost you don't really believe it's there and you get it and then you're like right now we actually need to do the proper like testing like that excitement has to like be channeled into like structured testing because you're all a bit giddy that you've got this brand new bike but yeah we have to think of it in a much more logical structured manner like right we need to like nitpick this bike and make sure it's right otherwise it's very easy to just kind of gloss over and be like oh yeah we're, we're excited but yeah we have to make sure it's, it was right and yeah doing that first testing i think a few of us i think when i i think i might have built the first bike actually and we built it and you're looking at the i remember actually getting the seat tube off of a the seat post out of the old bike that we borrowed a lot of the bits from and hadn't adjusted the saddle and so i like put the seat <laughs> post into the frame and i was like oh yeah this is and it was that moment where we like we knew it was steep but we put the seat post in with the saddle and it instantly like was just pointing towards the frame it was like yep cool this is that as a, and it, was, it almost like then cemented that moment like yeah we've we've pushed this quite far this is pretty steep so yeah, yeah having to like sure. undo the saddle quite a lot to like angle it back was uh was pretty yeah but we tried it and we loved it and it's just that thing you get on it and it was so nice when you're like yeah this works and then like when riders are coming back to you and going yep it's great we love it and truthfully like matt initially when he rode it was like yeah it feels a bit odd and we're like oh what have we done like have we pushed this too far and then he's like no, but I rode it some more and I rode it like it took a, like a ride or two to get, like, well, not even a ride, it's like a couple of bits on the ride to get used to it. But once you got used to it, it's like, it just pedals so good. Like it was, it was just, it's very different to what people had been riding. So it does, there's like a, almost like a bit of a transition period to like kind of get used to the different positioning of the bike. So yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely exciting when people come back and say, yeah, this is right. This is cool so definitely yeah i had a quick literally like 30 second spin on matt's last time i saw him with it and uh you're right it does feel very strange being so sort of above the bottom bracket when you're pedaling but yeah like you say you get used to these things and it's all good ali tell us a little bit about 
um, the changes, was there, other than the cable routing, was there much that changed from the first prototypes? Um, probably the biggest change was the seat tube. Uh, we actually ended up redesigning the area because there was a, we couldn't get quite enough seat tube insertion. So again, because we tried to, you know, share some tubing that was open model, essentially we did, we couldn't quite get a seat tube that had enough insertion based off where, you know, exactly where we, you know, we were constrained by where all our linkage points needed to be and where the, you know, the bottom bracket ended up and, and that kind of stuff. So we ended up redesigning the kind of center section of the uh, of the frame and putting a straight seat post or a straight seat tube in there. So that was probably the biggest change and that, that happened after, I guess, Matt's initial testing through to the sort of final production frame. Uh, and then that was kind of it really along, like, like Sam had said, there was the, the cable routing uh, at the head tube kind of changed slightly. But beyond that, I, I don't think there was a whole lot else that changed um, from memory. No, that was pretty much it. Yeah, fair play. And where, when did the name Privateer become part of this then, Sam? Was that was that an easy decision and when did you make it? Oh, yeah, naming things is probably the hardest, like, <laughs> hardest part. Not I wouldn't say the hardest part of the process because that would definitely take away a lot of credit from other people. But it was a, yeah, it was a long process of trying to name stuff. And we had just everywhere. Like, we tried to keep the, the people... We tried to like streamline it. Go right, everyone come to the table with a few names you really like, and we can go through it. And then everyone's like kind of sat around in a bit of a sort of roundtable discussion, and it just everyone's got, had different ideas. And then like a few people floated different ones, and then you kind of go, "Nah, that sounds like this," or "Oh, now that rhymes with that," or you know, or you get to a point where it's uh, you think you've got it, and then you start like researching the name, whether it's like the legal side of it, and you see if other people are doing it, and then you're up, oh, someone else has already kind of done something similar, so we don't want really to do that, and then. Privateer kind of got floated in there at some point as because it was always the I guess that was always the main goal of the bike. It was always like, oh, what is a privateer? Like who would want that bike? And then it kind of just stuck, really. It was one of those names that the more we thought about it, I think we realized we were almost like overthinking the name. We we're trying to build this idea of what the bike's gonna be. And like, you know, brand the brand name carries so much weight because it's the identity of the whole brand. And we realized that actually the, the idea of being a privateer and you know, what that stood for was kind of the driving force of the brand the whole way through. Like that was always the point that we came back to was, is this right for a privateer racer? Is this the right choice for that kind of rider? And like, well, that just makes sense. And it kind of fitted. And uh, yeah, it took a long time, to be honest. <laughs> it took probably longer than it should because you, you end up, it's, but it is like it's, but the moment you kind of nail it down, you then it becomes its own thing and it becomes its own identity and it builds up the brand. But until you have that, it kind of feels a bit weird. You have this, this idea of what we're trying to achieve, but it didn't, yeah, it didn't have that thing. And we got the name once we got it, like yep, that, it just works. It fits. It's like, it's, and it kind of tells a story of like what we were trying to do with the bike without even having to explain it too much. Like obviously we can, you know, we could talk for days about what the bike is about, but the brand name just summed it up in one word and be like, ah, oh, cool. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> yeah it makes sense when you see it definitely and so yeah privateer i guess spend a lot of time uh needing to work on their own bike they don't have a mechanic necessarily to do all that for them is there much that's gone into the bike either to kind of make it need less work or to make it easier to work on yeah i guess like again in external cable routing was a big one i think you know we've all spent time trying to root break hoses through frames and yeah just losing fluid everywhere and that's never fun so you know just external cabling was a big one but then as ali touched on before it was like designing the bearing points to be in the best way so bigger bearings are always going to survive a bit longer and having the alignment of certain bits when they're one piece 
just mean that the alignment of the frame would be better. And again, that's going to keep the bearing life much sort of higher. And then, yeah, the two-piece bearing on one side, again, it's just going to offset a lot of the forces into two bearings rather than one. So, And then and then even on bits on like the, out, like the inside of the rocker link, there's bits to be able to punch the bearing out, which otherwise you end up having to damage the bearing. There's like grooves that cut into it to allow access for that. And yeah, really that kind of thing. We tried to limit the amount of different parts in the frame. So like the main pivot axles are the same front and top and bottom. And there's only three bearing sizes and just stuff like little things like that, where it's like, oh, if you have to carry spares, you don't want to have to carry like a box full of different bits to kind of build your bike. You want to have a few key bits to to keep your bike running all season. And that was kind of the aim really was, yeah, trying to minimize the different components per bit. So yeah, like pivot bolts and stuff like that will try to use the same hardware where it was possible without kind of like compromising it to fit this idea it's like all right if we can do it great and we managed to kind of achieve that so that was that was cool yeah what are you most proud of in the design then ali because there's there's a lot of blood and sweat that's gone into this (laughs) um i think the fact that we were able to deliver a bike that you know isn't it's not slowing matt down you know it's it's obviously capable of performing at the same level as all of the other top EWS bikes, it doesn't cost the same amount as some of those other top EWS bikes. You know, I think that's cool. I think the aesthetic of the bike is, I, I, I quite, I like it. You know, there were a few things that we had to massage over time. You know, the the first couple of drafts of the design didn't look quite as sleek as the finished product, um, and I'm kind of glad that we did spend a bit more time and try to you know, push people a bit harder and push the design a bit harder to get to to the aesthetic that we've got. Um, and I think we've got a really strong family feel across all of the models so far as well, which is always, I don't know, it's always something I've liked to try and implement in any bikes that I've worked on in the past. And it's not always, it's not always possible because of, you know, depending on what the bike's for, sometimes things just get in the way. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pleased in the overall kind of aesthetic and how it's been received as well, you know, by the media and by the customers that have bought them. And I think it's kind of, yeah, there's kind of a small like cult following for that style of bike now, which is growing and growing. I think that's, I think that's cool. And also the fact that, you know, the geometry isn't um, as horrendous as I thought it was going to be at the start. Like whenever, <laughs> the, when the guys were pushing and, and talking about making it longer, make it longer, make the steep, you know, the seat angle 80, I was, I was, properly nervous about it because i think you touched on it earlier chris you know i hadn't ridden you know a bike that had that exact geometry before i was used to coming off bikes with different geometry and and i kind of knew you know in my head i knew what a long travel 29er should be or what i would want it to be but again i'm not designing for me i'm designing it for uh the customer that that, the the company has in mind you know and i think that it was cool to see you know, things actually work out, you know, you touched on it when you do jump on it for the first 30 seconds, it feels a bit odd, you know, but actually you get used to it really quickly and then you go, Oh, I'm actually really quite into this. And I almost didn't, not that I didn't want to like it. Obviously I did want to like it, but I kind of was expecting to, for it to feel a bit too weird. Um, whereas now it's like, oh, do you know what this, it doesn't feel like a super long travel bike either. It's, it's sort of thing you can just get on. And because of the, the position of the rider, it, I don't know. I just think it feels quite, a lot more like a usable bike than a kind of a race machine which is i'm pretty pleased at that too yeah excellent sam then tell us a little bit about what goes into launching a bike like this because not only is it pretty progressive i guess in its design and certainly in its in its geometry but it's also the first bike that you guys have ever produced it's a brand new brand effectively like where do you start with something like that 
Um, yeah, it's definitely, like I said, I touched on it before, Eurobike was the big kind of t- the point for us that we'd kind of been around floating the ideas and obviously with Hunt as well, like having that as a foundation was really good for us because we'd already, you know, we spent so much time building relationships and talking to the media and talking to riders and promoting ourselves as the, as Hunt and the rider firm. So we kind of had, we kind of already had an idea of how to like grow a a brand and how to build this identity and a following and we just took all that hard work that we'd already done and kind of piggybacked it a little bit to some extent to then apply that to to privateer so you know, as i said we put so much hard work into building relationships with journalists and media and other industry sort of friends and it's we can then contact those people and start talking to them when we're going to you know in the early days we weren't really talking too much about privateer we were kind of keeping it fairly you know, close to like close to our chest and just working on it. And, you know, but we'd always let slip of a few people. It's like, yeah, we're showing off this new wheel and they'd be like, oh, we're also working on this, uh, this cool bike project, but I'll tell you more about it coming up. So we'd kind of had started to sow the seeds quite early on before the brand was really, had fully evolved. And it then meant that there was like this kind of, this seed of excitement that we were then able to nurture throughout the sort of development period. Cause then they'd, like, every now and again, you'd get that same journalist you'd spoken to maybe a few months before kind of be like, Oh yeah. So um, that bike brand that you were talking about, you know, have you, have you got any further on that? Have you watched the news on it? And we were kind of cool to be able to build that. And we also, it was just great to be able to kind of use those contacts and those friends that to be able to show them the prototype at first. So there's a, there's a few people that we managed to kind of have sneak rides on the, the early prototype bikes. So not just like riders and athletes, but actually like some other media and so you know, like say industry friends that perhaps you know, would only have seen it later on. We were able to kind of get them onto it before the, we'd officially launched it, um, which is always really nice to do that. And obviously it's also good to sit there as a bit of a sponge to soak up their thoughts and that as well. And it's always something we try to do, whether it's a rider or a media is soak up their thoughts and, that was cool because we could do that as well. But then coming into launching it, we Eurobike was just massive for us. Like, as I said, like rolling around with a, a raw frame bike that has no, absolutely no paint on it. It's like stained mud and just has a big black sticker that just says prototype written on it. It's, yeah, it's amazing. Like so many people don't know who, they might not have known who I was, but we're rolling around this bike and they're like, oh, what's that? Like, what, what's he wheeling around? And it just, it kind of captures people's imagination a bit. And then obviously I'd be wearing a Hunt t-shirt and carrying Hunt wheels around to show those off. And people are like, oh, it's a guy from Hunt. He's got, he's got a bike. Like, what's going on here? And then, it, you know, we were able to use it as a sort of a stepping stone, I guess, to build into the brand. But then the brand kind of took on its own momentum. You could then, once Eurobike was over, which had like, this huge surge of just people because like, obviously all the media outlets did coverage on it and it was amazing like they provided us so much uh, like coverage from it and then people would just like our social media page we effectively set up before Eurobike as a bit of a oh, I guess we probably should have a like an Instagram page for privateer I guess at some point we're probably going to do something with this and it just went from like zero to a couple of thousand in a few days just because people Whoa. had seen it at Eurobike and were like oh okay and I think it kind of surprised us a bit as well I think we Although we knew we were doing something a bit different and maybe that people would like, we I don't think even we fully expected that it would have that much coverage that quickly and that much of a it would capture that many people. So it was really cool. So like I say Eurobike was that springboard to go, okay, we went from this wheel brand to be in this wheel brand that also has a you know its own bike brand and it's they're two separate things now. And it's it was really cool to be able to do that because yeah, it's nice to have privateer and it just grew massively from there. And it was it's yeah, it's crazy. And then it just had this momentum ever since and it's 
yeah, it's, it's slightly crazy to be honest. Yeah. Well, I think cause it's not just another enduro bike, is it? You guys, because you created something that was right at the edge of the envelope. I think that's, that's what's caught people's attention maybe. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think, you know, the geometry is a big part of it. And I think, you know, some people will focus on the price and it was always something that we tried to avoid. It was always like, yeah, if we can get the geometry and the function of the bike, right. Price kind of comes second to it, and people will look at it and go, yeah, that bike's amazing. And you go, Oh, that's a, I can actually afford it. Like I can buy into this. This is great. And it was, and as I, as Ali said before, it was, that was always that decision-making process of like, how do we, if we're, designing something is always you know we're spending their money and so yeah if you're spending that money how do we do it and by pushing it forward and getting the geometry and the function right and yeah people i think would really yeah it was cool to see people kind of and it was i think slightly scary even for like us as well like although we'd push ali so hard on the geometry i think even we were still a little bit like well are people gonna are people gonna take to this like or are we gonna be put people off by this slightly crazy sort of bike that we've built and it's uh yeah, even though we'd had riding time on it by then, it was still slight nerves as you bring this new bike around and waiting for people to kind of see it and go, oh, like, what have you done? And, but actually, it was the opposite. People were like, oh, I like what you've done. And that's really cool. And yeah, go from there. Definitely. What's the feedback been like then from from journalists and from customers? It's been really positive, which is is really nice because it just it just makes all the hard work worth it. Like from like myself and from obviously Ali doing all the design work and just all that time we spent kind of stressing the details and stressing over the smaller bits that just will make a big difference overall. And then just getting it, yeah, having that response back was really positive. Like, and again, I sort of touched on it before, like having people that were writing it earlier on, like some of the journalists were like, hey, are we, are we doing the right thing here? And they were like, yeah, you guys are like, keep doing it. Like keep pushing that direction. I don't back down, kind of keep going that direction and getting it into the hands of journalists and riders you know obviously journalists are hugely important because they've they've ridden so many other bikes they've ridden you know every bike that's come out every year and then for them to go oh i like this this is good this is different it was uh that was yeah that was quite humbling to have that kind of opinion of these very well respected uh journalists testing the bike and going yeah i really like it and and also then giving us some like feedback as well like being quite open for them to give us uh, some feedback back to it you know we it's not a perfect bike. I don't think you could ever design something perfect. And I think you always listen to their feedback and all how we can improve. So that was cool that you know, we can have these open discussions with them. They're like, yeah, it's really good, but how do you feel about this? And it was the same with riders as well. Just, uh, you know, I wouldn't say average rider, but like a lot of our riders are very talented bike riders and they've riding these bikes because they wanted something that can handle that. And we've had some feedback from riders that has been really useful for us as well. Like you kind of put it into the pot effectively and you're like, oh, what can we do next? And as it, you come out with all these ideas and it's just really helpful to guide the brand into the future. So like we hit it right, but we can do this. And, but overall we've been really positive and it's been, it's been amazing to see the responses and like the, the photos that people are sending us of them riding and them saying like, Oh, I did this ride. And I was like, fastest here. Or I went up on this trail and I've never ridden it clean before. And I did that. And it's, it's really cool. Cause ultimately as cliche as it sounds like everyone that was involved with the project is a rider themselves. So seeing, these riders having an amazing time on, on the bike that we collectively developed was yeah it's, it's it's a really nice feeling definitely man it sounds awesome and and it must be going well because you've also started offering complete bikes also a, a pretty unbelievable price point there's got to be a lot of skill that goes into putting together the spec for those builds how have you how have you thought about that to make sure it's like an incredibly capable bike still, but that you're managing to hit what you guys feel is the right price point. 
Um, again, I think it kind of follows. I think it's always been like our core following of that that's that phrase that we kind of go back to it again and again. Is like how are we spending the riders' money? Like if I if they're a rider, would they would they upgrade to this part? Like would they prefer this part or that part? And it's we kind of keep asking ourselves, and sometimes it it's it can almost slow us down a little bit because you keep asking, but it's the right thing to do because you go to them like, oh, would you prefer like a nicer rear derailleur or a nicer shifter? Like nine times out of 10, again, yeah, well, I'll, I'll write a nicer shifter. That's the bit that's going to make it feel better. So when I was putting together the spec, it was always that question of what is the bit that's going to make the biggest performance difference to the rider and what bits can we, like, can we afford to make the, maybe a, a step down spec wise? You know, you're looking at, the frame like we got the frame quite happy and we're always like well suspension then is the key bit that's going to drive the performance of the bike like it's no good having an amazing frame but then you put a really like a dud shock on it because then mm-hmm. you've just you're just limiting what the frame can do so you're like right we want to make sure we put the best shock on it and then it's like the same as suspension because there's no point having an amazing back end if you've then got a fork that's not doing what it should do so and also not only is it accessing or allowing the rider to access the best performance it's also going to be the most expensive thing to upgrade in the future so if you look at it like having that fork you're getting in a package and it makes it more attainable for a rider whereas if you had to upgrade that fork down the line you're looking at a fairly significant investment to get the next fork up even if it's just a model up it's you have to buy a whole new fork and then it was kind of looking at the priorities from there really it's like suspension was number one for us and then it was like okay what's the bit that's actually holding on to the ground tires like that's a big thing you need to make sure your tires are good because if they're always washing out then you're not getting confidence so it's tires and what's going to slow you down like brakes because everyone thinks it's just to slow you down but also they can help you go quicker so if you've got a bike that's can barrel through a big tech section you want to make sure you're in control and that's again come back to brakes and it's it was that kind of priority list. You kind of break it down into all the key bits that are going to be, you know, the biggest gain and the biggest cost to the rider afterwards if they have to change it. Yeah, and then it's you go back from that. And like I said, the the drivetrain, for example, is a, one area we're like, oh, you know, SLX works really well, but the XT shifter has a bunch of benefits that we can upgrade quite affordably. And it doesn't. It's always going to be there. Like you very rarely would you damage a shifter because it's tucked underneath the handlebar. But chances are, on a race front, you might clip your rear derailleur. And that's going to write it off. And if you just if we put XT on there or XTR or you know whether it's SRAM, you've got GX or XO, you know, that's always the bit that's probably the most vulnerable to being hit. So actually, we can put a part on that that works really well. Maybe slightly workhorse finish, but it works really well. And then you have the performance from the shifter. And it's the same with a lot of bits like that. Like hmm, I think we just try and put ourselves if like we were building that bike and what would be the most gain from it. Like what is the most performance gain for the value? And we never really set a price the same with the bike it was never like oh we want to build a bike for x amount of money it was always what is the best spec for the i almost want to say like the lowest buying that would kind of defeat it's not really the reason but it's like what is the privateer package like what would be the bits that can survive a season underneath a privateer without being crazy and that was kind of the driving force you know you look at what is your rider like what is the the aim like who is that rider for who's that bike for like what is that rider doing and yeah how can we serve them the best and that was kind of how the spec came about was really trying to think about the key individual bits in the same way that we stress the details on the frame you stress the details on the spec so like yeah it that was it and and also we were lucky that you know it's a mostly direct buy brand so we're not having to deal with shop floor like it's always kind of bugged me on a personal level when you look at bikes that are built for like a shop floor sales that 
they have to appeal to a rider that's maybe not quite as educated they haven't quite you know they're not as into bikes or like the bike shop isn't going to explain to them maybe perhaps so they look at it and go oh that's got the better rear derailleur and it's got carbon handlebars and it, they lift it up and goes oh it's quite light because it's got lighter casing tires on it but they're not going to delve much deeper into that like we can kind of put a spec together and explain the spec because you know, ultimately people that are in the shop might not explain it how you want it to be explained or miss a point and it's you know, no disrespect to that at all, but it's like it serves a different rider. Like they're willing to read into like why you chose the spec, so we can choose you know, heavier tires because they're more appropriate to the Jura rider, and um, we choose the lower end uh, rear derailleur. But you know, we have the higher shifter, and it's it's a different build. It's quite nice to be able to build it how we want to do it because then we can explain the, like the rationale behind that on our website and to the people, and they'll kind of hopefully respect what we've done and. Yeah, buy into it is you know i think we're kind of appealing to that rider and that, that we can explain why we did it so yeah never thought about that but yeah your your target customer i guess is a more knowledgeable rider than maybe your average person that walk, walks through the door of a bike shop so it makes it makes total sense that you can approach the spec a bit differently yeah and like i say it's no not at all disrespect to anyone that buys a bike from a bike shop like they serve a hugely valuable role within the cycle industry sure. and but there are customers that will buy a bike based on what they see purely from a cosmetic value they go oh that looks nice it's got this nice bit on it job done but yeah we've got riders that are buying into a bike that they're they're probably buying it to do a season of racing or they're going to go on a bunch of trips to the alps or some kind of alpine riding where wherever it is and they're probably quite opinionated as well which is always difficult because you're trying to deal with right like full build spec as well is always somewhat of a, a balance or a compromise i think balance is the nicer word but yeah you always you're never going to put everybody. So we try and put a spec together that is going to work for the broadest rider, but also serve them in the best way, give them the most performance. And you, everyone can have a different opinion on a grip or a handlebar or a saddle. But if we can provide them a part that works, then those parts are quite a lot more affordable to change than if we spec a lower end suspension fork, for example. So yeah. yeah, stuff like that, which you can kind of play around with quite a lot. So you end up with a lot of spreadsheets of different ideas, but you end up kind of roughly end up where we want it, which is really cool. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And and you've gone from there and you've now launched the 141, so a slightly a shorter travel model into the range. And Ali, I'm guessing a lot of people will think that uh, all you do is like copy, paste, and then <laughs> like scale it down by about 10% and then you've got the design ready. But tell us a bit yeah. about like what what goes into getting the, taking the 161 and then creating something in yeah. the same family but with a bit less travel and for a, maybe a different customer. Yeah, no, you just put a different sticker on it and call it something different. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I suppose whenever, once we've kind of ridden the 161 um, and realized, yeah, okay, we feel like we've done a, a reasonably good job of what it was supposed to be. You know, not everybody races, not everybody gets that trip to the Alps, you know, once a year. And, and I, you know, especially coming from the UK, you know, we wanted something that was almost a little bit um more uk trail focused as well something that you could ride you know longer days on or whatever and, and i think you know we knew we were onto something with the 161 so the 141 was basically kind of like a little brother version of that um so again we you know we we knew we were onto something with all the i guess the construction side of things so we just went back to the drum board looked at the geometry and decided what tweaks do we need to make okay we it needs to be slightly lesser travel i don't think we had 
we decided it was going to be 141 millimeters at that time. We wanted, you know, we were like, okay, let's make something that we can pair with a 150 fork and let's aim for roughly 140. And it's just the way it worked out. So that was kind of, that was kind of lucky, I guess. Um, and it was just, a, I guess, a revised geometry set, the seat tube angle. We knew that, okay, 80 degrees is great for that longer travel bike. We probably want to sort of slacken that off slightly to give a, a you know, a, a slightly stretched out uh, cockpit for doing slightly longer rides. Um, and again, just tightened up head tube angles and stuff as well. Um, so it's not drastically different, I guess, in a lot of ways, but it is a, there, there, even within the, within the camp of people that were working on the development, you know, so all the guys at the rider firm and myself, you know, we were all looking at it and going, you know, 50% of us were out and out 161 riders and the other 50%, well, it's probably too much bike for the sort of riding that we do now as we, you know, generally it seemed to be the older guys who were like, yeah, we want something a bit shorter. And the younger guys were like, yep. We want the long travel. We're going racing, so that's kind of where the one four one came from, and it made it made sense to try and add that into the range. But I I don't think any of us predicted the sort of uptake and success that it would get. Um, you know, I guess Sam could could t- kind of touch on that, but we always figured the one six one would be the the big hero product, and and actually the one four one was maybe a, a more logical um, option for some other people. But uh, yeah, I think the two complement each other quite well. Yeah, go on then, Sam. Give us your take on the the one four one. Yeah, I think your know, Ali sums it up quite well. Like the one six, we know the one six one is is a fairly specific bike, but it was always built to, for that in mind. I think if we had kind of tamed it down, it wouldn't be the bike it was. So I think you know we designed it as a race bike, and that's what it is through and through. And I think yeah, the one four one is you can still race it if you want to do like your local U, like UK Enduros or whatever like that. It's still so capable, but it's just a bit more user-friendly and it's amazing how we can we kind of settled on a couple of geometry tweaks to make it ride significantly different having spent time on both of them it's amazing that although they might look quite similar they do ride quite significantly different and it just offers a bit yeah it just offers that for the rider that's just going to do trail riding or they want to ride all day but they still want to have a bike that's capable of getting them down the steepest horriblest jankiest like tech section so it's you know it's capable of doing all of that but it's it's still just you know it's a, just a bit more friendly when you're not doing that stuff so and yeah and i touched on like the seat of angle is great for when you are just winching up a climb but like sometimes on occasion on some of the more like undulating trails like it maybe didn't put you in quite the, the optimal position um so like the one point just like gives you a little bit more top tube length to uh just give you a bit more comfortable when you're climbing a bit more room to kind of maneuver and uh yeah it's, it's yeah it's just and it's funny and it is it's there's a few people in the office that love the ones that gone and there's a few people that absolutely love and it's you can kind of ride them together but you get yeah, i think the one for one serves so many more riders in a lot of ways and there's a lot of people that maybe want an enduro bike and they love the idea of it but realistically they're not doing the big trails they're not going away abroad to hit the bigger mountains so like the one for one kind of can tackle most of what an enduro bike can do but just on a like more accessible level for when you're not doing it um so yeah i think yeah as i said like the 161 was always like that we made a big splash of it and i think it was the right way around because it's like it kind of sets the, the almost like the precedent for like what we were trying to achieve like yep this is a race bike this is what we would do it's a focused bike and then we can kind of take that and just i guess like massage it and refine it into something a little bit different and you end up with the one for one it's yeah it's such a yeah it's really fun <laughs> Nice. Is it a bigger seller than the one six one now? Then um, it's like it's not been out for as long, but like in terms uh-huh. of like the initial, like the initial response from it, it's, it's been significant. Like it's been really, really cool to see that. And I guess there's always a bit of a worry that if you make the bike, there's a bit 
slightly tamer, although like that's still far from being tame, but it's you know, it's slightly more it's close to a normal bike, if you want to call it that. And we're always a bit worried that maybe people see that oh, you know, there's other bikes that are quite similar, but actually they realize that we're still doing something quite different. And obviously it helps that the 161 made such a splash in the first place because they're the people that maybe saw it and like, yeah, it's a great bike. I love what these guys are about, but it's just too much bike for me. And like we were, we knew that was coming. A few people had messaged in saying like, I love the bike. Are you doing anything else? And we were kind of had to be quite cagey, like, yeah, we kind of were working on something, but, you know, we can't really tell you the details of it. And so it was, it was interesting. I think there was a lot more people, like with the 161, we didn't have anyone like waiting for it necessarily. Like it'd been like a few people had captured images of it on like prototypes and it'd been kind of me- like mentioned a few times, but never, people didn't really know what it was. Whereas like the one for one, people were kind of anticipating what our next move was, which is, it's it's slightly it's pretty scary if I'm honest. Like people have this like expectation that you know we made the one six one, and we could kind of just launch it and it's its own thing and it will have its own response to what it is. But with the one for one, people knew who we were. Now they had this like yeah an idea of what they expected from us. And it's like and when we we went backwards and forwards so many times, it's like do we make it more trail focused? Do we like push it further down that scale to make it a bit more like cross countryish trail, or do we make it the aggressive trail bike that it is and that really took a lot of time to like figure out where it fit and how, yeah, we said where it was and we love how it is and we're glad we did because it's and it seems a lot of other people really like it as well which is again really humbling when people are kind of looking yeah i like what you're doing and it's yes yeah, it's, it's nice great stuff and ali what there's one thing that kind of stands out for me in the design of the bikes mm-hmm. um which feels kind of unexpected given that it's a bike that's been engineered to achieve a really impressive price Mm -hmm. and that's the fact that you've got different chainstay lengths across all the different frame sizes yeah talk a little bit about a why why that was obviously so important to you guys that you've kept that on the table and then also maybe like how you've gone about achieving that yeah funny i heard you talk about this on our previous podcast um and i wondered if that question would come up so i guess i've kind of touched on it before as well like geometry as as a whole is has moved on significantly in the last five to 10 years. And I think the one thing that hasn't changed a lot is the fact that, you know, people focus so much on the front center and making it, you know, the right size and the right head angle and worrying about reach and seat tube angle and all that kind of stuff for riders. But for a long time, that's the chain stays just been forgotten about. Um, and obviously as a person, you know, your arms get longer as you get taller, so do your legs and all that kind of stuff. So as your bike grows, it would make sense to, I, you know, balance that whole thing out. Um, now, it's, there are a couple of companies that do it, um, and they all do it in a few different ways. We kind of, we're doing it in almost the sort of idiot's guide way to longer chin stays and the fact that we have got four different chin stays and four different seat stays for every frame. Um, okay. And usually the factories would just tell you that they're not going to do that. Um but by the powers of persuasion, <laughs> we've managed to achieve it. Um, and it does, it just makes life really simple in terms of, you know, the bike is the bike. This is the chin stay length. There's no, you know, we're not, we're not disguising a different chin stay length in a, in a, in a, a way that you might see with other brands, you know, they, they physically are longer and shorter as the size range goes up. And I think that's important, obviously for, for small riders as well as the larger riders who, you know, 
with the seat post extended when they are in a climbing position, you know, they, they don't want to have that necessarily super short back end that they might have on a smaller size bike, you know, cause it's all, I guess it's all to do with leverage and where their, where their center of mass is going to be. Um, and then obviously when they're in a, in a standing up, a kind of aggressive riding position, it still, it still has that same benefit in terms of traction and, and balance uh, for the bike. So, uh, so it is really as, as, as simple as that, but you know, we, it's, it's a feature that we think adds significant improvement to the ride of the bike. And, and it's something that we, we definitely want to keep as we move forward with future development too. Yeah. I get, you must feel quite strongly about its impact on the way the bike rides because it's it's only going to come with cost to you guys and then yeah. ultimately the customer i guess exactly it is it, you know it would be cheaper not to do it put it that way and and would that make the cost of the bike cheaper for the end user yeah it might it might make it slightly cheaper um but i i feel it's one of those features that you know i think the whole team feels it's one of those features that does add enough enough value to the whole thing if that makes sense but it is complicated to do it um for sure and uh but yeah i think it definitely improves the handling it's going to be hard to tell though isn't it because you can't you can only be you know me riding the bike or you riding the bike you can only ever experience what it's like for you to be the person riding that size of bike you know you don't know what it's like to be a taller person or a smaller person so it's really hard in that respect you know so you have to make an assumption on you know is this actually making you know does the bike feel the same no matter what size rider is on it and and is that important or not you know i just think we have to put our best foot forward and try and you know, I guess offer something that we feel is balanced depending on the size of the, the bike and who the rider is intended to be. Yeah, fair play. Good on you. And uh, Sam, you've got an e-bike in development, I think. Hopefully that doesn't mean half the audience turn off and get angry about it, but <laughs> tell us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, the e-bike, I guess, in some ways was natural progress, I think. And it, again, this is another thing that was driven quite heavily by Matt. So Matt has always been, basically ever since we sat down from the first moment of discussing privateer with him he's like oh can so you can do an e-bike like, um, like yeah i guess like, we haven't really got that far like we've kind of already just doing the 161 like we've probably before like and like we've always had like a list of bikes and our like mentally like what we'd like to achieve but obviously they're normally quite far down like you try and get one at a time we're not trying to do everything at once because it just doesn't happen but yeah the fact he was like yeah well, like an e-version of that would be great I'm like cool okay like let's get this kind of figuring it out and i think e-bikes as well have kind of grown massively over the last few years and i think mentality towards them has changed so people have kind of quite opened up to the idea that it can be a bit of a training tool for racers or just for trail riders alike like you can generally get more time on the hill like if you've got an hour to ride you'll probably get more time pedal uh, like more time descending because you can just get up the hill much quicker so i think people have kind of changed their their attitude to it in a bit i think before where it was quite i guess it was quite a, a yeah a touchy subject for some people i'd imagine and i think now people are starting to realize the benefits of what an e-bike can give and i think you know we'd always had it in our mind as to like we could achieve something along this and i think you know we had the platform that made a lot of sense like this was a bike that was built to pedal up a, a hill and then descend really quickly and ultimately if you put a motor in it it's only going to make it better because you're going to get the hill quicker and easier and have more energy for the downhill Obviously, it's not quite as straightforward as that. I'm sure we basically would have told Ali to do that, but I'm sure he'll kind of fight back and go, no, it's not as easy as to plug in a motor into a frame and off you go. Um, but, yeah, and then we've been, you know, we've worked with the guys at Shimano quite a lot uh, over various projects and with Hunt as well and with uh, with Privateer. And then we got, they kind of started to talk to us about the new EP8 motor that was coming out and, like, it was down the line and they started talking to us like, oh, would you guys, 
you'd be interested in developing a bike for this and was like oh this is like a, this is crazy that like shimano approaching us to help us develop this bike and that was really kind of an opportunity that we couldn't turn down almost because like this is an amazing motor like we'd kind of got the early access to the information of what they were going to try and achieve with it so we're like yeah like we need to design a frame for this motor and yeah it kind of went from there like and we've it went through a lot of stages as the same with the e161 uh, the standard e161 is like how do we what is it serving who is the rider what are we trying to do with it and realistically we kind of felt they were the same rider like the, e, the 161 and the e161 so similar riders and the fact that they just want to go up the steepest climb to get to the steepest descent or to do the biggest descent or whatever it is and it's that was it really and yeah it kind of went from there and it was a really cool project it's still in the works there's still some bits that we wanted to refine that we kind of I guess we did a bit of a soft launch with the EP8 launch um, in September. And that was really cool to see the response because, again, a bit like how I said with the one-for-one, one, people have this pre-built like uh, impression of what the brand is. And we were a bit worried because some people are quite like, no, want to do an e-bike, that's it. They're not, we're not, not dealing with them anymore. And it was like we were always a bit worried that some people might go, oh, they're going into an e-bike. So like, what is this brand? Are they going to like, and actually, we didn't really get any of that. It was, I think, we kind of over overfought it a bit, and I like, perhaps worried about it a bit too much. But it was a uh, the response from it was really good. People really liked it, and it's uh, we wanted to make sure it was right though. So although we did that soft launch, that bike was very much like a prototype bike to then start figuring out how we refine some of the the nicety bits of it, like cable routing and just like just fit and finish. Really, like the frame itself, like geometry was fairly sorted we're still doing some rider testing on it and making sure we're happy with the motor and the tune of the motor but you know that stuff we can kind of change afterwards but in terms of getting the geometry right we were quite happy with where we were we made some tweaks to obviously fit the motor in um and how that's going to change the way the bike rides then it's we wanted just to develop yeah the like the, the final fit of it and making sure that the just the finishing touches of it were right so that's still something we're working on that's still working very close with ali and uh peter redburn to make sure that it's as good as it can be and it was always that kind of thing it was like if we're going to make something make it as good as we can do so we didn't want to rush into an e-bike because it's uh it's a big big move so we wanted to make sure we did it right yeah have you got a have you got a kind of launch set how far away are we from that um i'd say we're, we're pretty far into the development i don't think we have like a set launch in mind i think we've kind of our always our goal was to get a bike ready for epa launch to have a bike that was like rideable to get an idea of it so we can kind of launch and, make, and basically again piggyback off another launch like Shimano doing this EPA launch there's gonna be a lot of buzz around that we should have a bike we can have a bike ready for that and we're working on it that was our goal was to have a bike a rideable bike by then but after that we didn't ever really set a deadline and obviously the year being what it is has obviously kind of made a made that decision even harder because it's makes it harder to know what the year is going to look like next year like do we yeah. want an e-bike to land when do we want it to land? Like, and just that's made it a lot more difficult. But I don't think we've ever really had a set deadline in in mind because I think sometimes as much as it can help you develop something quicker and probably put a bit more focus on it, sometimes it forces you to rush certain things. We wanted to make sure this was this was right. So you know, we're still testing like shock tunes and other bits and pieces like that that are really going to impact the way the bike rides. So we're not far off, but whether when the bike comes out is still kind of to be decided. Fair enough. And uh, is that keeping you busy enough or are there any other things kind of going on that you're either able to maybe we're, tell us a little bit about or tease us with? We're always working. I guess it's like we definitely uh, keep Ali busy, to say the least. I think it's always, uh, <laughs> there's always ideas, as I said before. Like we've always had like a few 
like bikes in mind that we'd like to do and it's you know, and again kind of touching back on the fact like like the people that are involved are all riders and they're always every week you're looking at you know another brand's done this or like oh i was riding at the weekend i thought about that and it does help kind of shape a few ideas and and it's being a bit smaller we do have to prioritize like the 161 is currently our big priority because it's you know we don't have the resource to go like oh that team you develop this and the other team will develop that it's like we only have a one team to develop one bike at a time really and we have ideas but i think for us now it's uh you no know, always working on something new we've you know, started to get some sketches together and some design elements of it together but it's about moving the bike forward and moving into like a next generation of privateer to you know we've kind of found our feet a bit which allows us to take i'd say take a few more risks in terms of like investment into things and like really channel that into more you know, different details and different finish and just yeah taking the, the next step forward really of the brand and i think that's it's great for us because it allows our kind of imagination to go a bit further because we're like oh we can we can kind of push the the envelope a little bit further in terms of the design and also gives ali and the team a little bit more room to to grow that way as well obviously when you know when we're a smaller brand you have to be quite restrictive in terms of what we're trying to achieve like this is what we want to do but we've got to, you know do this but now we are a bit bigger we can we can go forward but yeah we can't really tell you what we're working on but all i say is it's uh it should be a, it'd be a good step forward for us it'd be nice so yeah there's definitely a lot of ideas that maybe we couldn't have achieved when we started but now are possibilities for us to to take forward so yeah, it's exciting times to say the least. Yeah, definitely. Sounds good. Well, while we've got both of you, uh, you guys here on the on the chat, like I'm interested to hear your top tips or your words of wisdom on how people should approach kind of getting involved in the bike industry if that's something that they're interested in. Because I know a lot of people crave a career in the industry, and you you guys both work within it in in two kind of very different areas, but obviously work together a lot. Ali, maybe we'll start with you. What, uh, yeah, what advice would you give people that want to get into the bike world? Um, I guess you know, local bike shops exist everywhere. That, you know, so uh, that would be a really good part of call. I think I, I don't know anyone that works in the industry now that hasn't kind of had at least a bit of a a stint in some sort of bike shop. Um, you know, those guys that work there and run those shops, they they know a lot about what's going on and they've got the I suppose they've they're the first port of call to, you know, the rest of the industry in terms of they're buying, you know, they're buying bikes and products from distributors to sell. So there's a link there and then those distributors are working with the brands and there's a link. So I guess I, I guess the bike shops are the the kind of the front line um, for getting into it. But I, I think if you're into bikes and you enjoy riding them and you want to to do more, you can't really go too wrong doing that kind of, I guess, knocking on those doors, yeah. Okay. Really? Good stuff. Sam, what about you? Um, yeah, I guess it's probably some advice. I guess that's kind of my path into them, I'm sure, like Ali said as well. Like mine, yeah, really like leaving school, not really know what you want to do. So it's kind of a typical move for me. It's like, oh, I go work in a bike shop. It's like what I do, I, I know how to fix bikes. I might as well put it to some use while I figure out where I actually want to be or what I want to do. And it kind of just, it eventually turns into something else. You start learning what you want to do, whether you want to, you know, and I think it, working in shops just gives you a lot of experience to, yeah, to know what people are like. I think if you don't have that experience in a shop, you kind of, it can be quite uh, like insulating from the realities of like actually the rider, the shop, like what are these people experiencing? So it's quite nice that, you know, although we now work in the industry, we can kind of look back and go, oh yeah, like if I was in a shop right now, I think that was, that was a bad idea or that was, that's a really good idea. I would have thought that was really cool. Or, you know, it kind of gives you that, that knowledge to kind of base a lot of decisions on. So I think 
shops are great for that and it kind of then helps you meet a lot of people because you'll get to know you know distributors like reps that come in you'll probably go to a few events you start talking to people and gradually you just get to know people and then opportunities come up and it's uh you know like my time in the bike shop i was doing sales for a bit and i did a bit of mechanicing did management stuff in the shop and then you move into distributor side you're doing like inside sales or you're doing a bit like workshop stuff and then an opportunity comes up and i think it's just being open-minded to a lot of the opportunities like when i started a hunt i didn't think i'd be where i am now it's uh you know it's being open-minded and approaching it like yeah you might you spend your time in a shop and you learn and just being a sponge i think it's the best way of doing it you just you soak up everything and you get to know people you talk to people and then gradually opportunities come up and it's yeah just staying open and kind of embracing them when they do come up really all right good advice well if people want to find out a bit more about what you guys are up to where's the best place for them to head um probably generally just to the private like website that's got most information on it it's just privateerbikes.com or on instagram really for for our side of it which again is just privateer bikes we generally if you want to see some sneaky stuff privateer generally the, the instagram pages you most likely find some sneaky stuff so you gotta be quite eagle-eyed so every now and again something will uh might be on there but i can't give away what it is because you know that that ruins the fun so that sounds like a challenge yeah just uh i'm not saying it's going to happen all the time but now and again we will post stuff that if you pay enough attention you might go hmm, that doesn't look like one of the other bikes or hmm, that, that doesn't look standard so yeah, well, I, I know what I'm doing when we finish this recording then. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, thanks a lot for your time, guys. It's been super interesting chatting, finding out a bit more. And yeah, I'm glad it's going well. It's an exciting, exciting new brand. Nice to have uh, another good bike brand out of the UK. So yeah, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, yeah, Chris. No Anytime. Nice one. Cheers, guys. Sure. Thanks All right, that's it for this episode with Sam and Ali. I hope you've enjoyed listening and finding out more about the Privateer brand. A massive thanks to the Strength Factory and Privateer for supporting this episode of the show. If you want to get on Ben's complete MTB program, then as a downtime listener, you can save $20 on the eight-week foundation part of the program up until the 23rd of November. All you need to do is to head to thestrengthfactory.uk, navigate to the complete MTB program and use the code DOWNTIME, all lowercase, at the checkout. Also, if you can't get to the gym, then his bodyweight program is available for a one-off cost of £16, and that's at thestrengthfactory.uk forward slash bodyweight dash MTB. If you want to find out more about Privateer and see the 161 and 141 bikes, then you can do that over at privateerbikes.com. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you fancy representing the show, then you can grab yourself a t-shirt or one of our brand new sweatshirts or hoodies by heading over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. You know what to do by now. Please keep on spreading the word about the show. There's no marketing budget, so it is you lot that have got this to where it is. It's an incredible feeling knowing that you're behind me and I appreciate every single one of you who's helped to spread the word. Please keep it up. Also, if you've got a couple of minutes, a review on iTunes is really helpful too. All right, we've got another awesome episode coming up soon. But until then, get out and ride.